MutinyRadio.fm listener to the weekly review. Roman Reimer is not with us this week. I will be playing a vintage weekly review from 7-11-17 many years ago. Please enjoy it. The weekly review every Friday from noon to 2 on MutinyRadio.fm. And well, and there she works, yeah. and they've got good day. And the weekly review I just got the email from Roman, so I'm actually going to be playing November 20th, 2020. All right, the weekly review of Roman Reiner. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's the thing is like, Pam, you know, like you worked with, like, we were employed to look after children. Like, yeah.
welcome to the weekly review. Hey there, welcome to the weekly review with Roman. Today it's Friday, November 20th. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got some new equipment here at the studio, which is extremely exciting. So grateful to be using new headphones. Fun times. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are, we are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. And uh, Mutiny Radio sits on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatouche Ohlone peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. And if you go to our website, which is weeklyrev.org, if you click on the Land Acknowledgement tab, uh, there's a list of links which provide information including history, places to donate, including the Sagorate Land Trust, uh, Indigenous Mutual Aid, as well as a map which shows you which indigenous lands are on, and a thread of native news outlets, and more information as well. So please do check that out. Again, weeklyrev.org, and click on the Land Acknowledgement tab. Have a really great show today. I had the privilege of speaking with Dylan Rodriguez earlier this week, and we recorded it on Skype. So I'll be playing that today, and it will be um, coming very shortly. So I was going to read a, a brief introduction uh, of Dylan. Dylan Rodriguez is an abolitionist teacher, scholar, and activist. He was named to the inaugural class of Freedom Scholars in 2020 and is president of the American Studies Association. He has worked as professor at the University of California, Riverside since 2001 and recently served as the faculty selected chair of the UCR division of the Academic Senate and the chair of Ethnic Studies. Dylan's thinking, writing, teaching, and scholarly activist labors address the complexity and normalized proliferation of historical regimes and logics of anti-Blackness and racial colonial violence in everyday state, cultural, and social formations. He conceptualizes abolitionist and other forms of movement as part of the historical collective genius of rebellion, survival, abolition, and radical futurity. He is the author of three books, most recently White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare, and The Logic of Racial Genocide, and is the co-editor of Critical Ethnic Studies, a reader. Dylan can be reached, uh, I'll provide uh, Dylan's contact information on our webpage. I'll create a post uh, shortly after this episode goes live um, with links to Dylan's books and many more of the organizations that are mentioned during this episode. There's a lot, so I'd recommend uh, if you're sitting down listening, grab a pen and some, a paper, or if you prefer to type things up. Uh, there's just so many great pieces of information here, and I learned so much, and I'm looking forward to listening to our, our chat once more. So I will be uh, playing this momentarily. And again, big thanks to Dylan for um, taking the time to speak with us. Just learned so much, and really appreciate that. So it's going to take me a moment to get everything set up here. And if you're listening for the first time, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Mutiny Radio is a more or less a collective radio station here. And um, if you're interested in doing a show here of your own, there are plenty of slots available. So anyone and everyone is welcome to create the content that you believe the world needs. So here I am speaking with Dylan Rodriguez. All right. And I'm here with Dylan Rodriguez. Dylan, thanks for being here. What's up? It's about time, huh? Yes, yes. Been looking to talk with you for quite a while, so I'm glad we were able to make it work. So we'll be talking a little bit about, actually a lot, about the um, coalition to get uh, cops off campus. 
as well as a history of policing on college campuses. And so first off, I wanted to, to ask you, how did you get involved with the coalition? I've been doing work around police and prison abolition and, and other radical movements and um, revolutionary, proto-revolutionary, anti-colonialist type struggles um, for almost my entire adult life. And, and my engagement with abolitionist work has been an ongoing thing since the latter part of the 90s, since before abolition was a speakable term in most rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think it was not even really a choice to be involved in, in, a, yes. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a campaign or a movement to abolish police from the campus. As far as I was concerned, it's the bare minimum yes, of what yes. I and any other people that are employed at universities and colleges should be doing. Um, so no, it wasn't really a choice. I would say it's more, it's more of, of a kind of organic obligation that emerged because of the historical moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't point to any, for me anyways, I can't point to a particular point of inspiration. It's more of an invitation, which, which yes. I want to talk about with you today as well, which you know, I, I see invitation as probably the most important and radical gesture that we can make to each other and to folks that are um, kind of on the margins or maybe outside the political and cultural communities that we're, that we're developing um, our, our political cultural work in, you know, whether it's organizing, whether it's art, whether it's classroom teaching, whether it's something else, that um, it's, it's the gesture, the radical abolitionist gesture of invitation. And that's, so that's, that's really how this whole thing happened, was there's a group of colleagues who I treasure, um, Hannah Apple, Nick Mitchell, uh, Charmaine Chua, uh, a group of folks that are, are employed by the UC, University of California system as well. And they basically just, it, it was kind of an invitation, but it was more like telling me. They're like, okay, this is your assignment. You have to be part of this group, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's an invitation, but it was also a kind of um, a demand on me. Like it was, it was a kind of articulation that, you know, you know we think you need to be here. Um, yes. So, so it's kind of me embracing an obligation that was articulated to me by some treasured friends and colleagues too. Excellent. And for folks who are maybe unfamiliar, myself included, um, what, what's the history of policing on college campuses? This is a critical thing for folks to understand because uh, I think the, the prevailing or maybe the hegemonic history of, of, of cops on campuses is, is only a partial view. Um, I mm-hmm. think a robust and full view is really necessary um, for, for different people to understand why this is such, um, uh, such an urgent obligation. So there's a kind of common history that is shared um, both in official academic histories and in progressive movement histories that the presence of fully empowered armed police forces on university and college campuses uh, was more or less incited by the anti-war movement and to mm. a lesser extent, to a lesser extent by the free speech movement. Um, in the University of California system in particular, the free speech movement has canonical status. So both things are partly true, but, but I, what I want to challenge is the, the hegemonic canonical status of those two overlapping movements as being the principal cause um, for universities and colleges to begin to um, militarize their campus. And let's call it what it is, right? It's not just a police yes. presence, it's a militarized. So we're talking about a militarization of the campus. Those are, I would argue that those are actually an important but, but relatively um, minor aspect uh, of what led to universities and colleges instantiating police on campuses. I think a, a robust history of this, and, and there's, 
there's different scholars who, who do work not necessarily around police on campuses, but who do work around what I'm about to mention, which is um, the rise of radical grassroots rebellions, organized revolutionary anti-colonialist liberationist movements through through the latter 60s and into the 70s. Right. So, so it's right around that period of time when the canonized phases of um, the, the militantly anti-apartheid so-called civil rights movement, which is really the black freedom movement, um, finally officially destroyed American apartheid, right? Finally officially destroyed Jim and Jane Crow. That you had uh, an eruption and proliferation of these radical and revolutionary movements. So, so not only in the streets, right? Not only through um, different forms of urban, urban rebellion, through looting, through challenging property relations, challenging um, existing political and gender relations across, across all different geographies, right? From the urban to the rural. So, so that's all happening during this period of time. I think, I think where the police presence comes in, it's not only in response to, to that proliferation of uprising, but it's also, crucially, the emergence of organized forms of politicized, sustained, revolutionary and liberationist struggle by groups principally like the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. right, so in California, <clears throat> in California, if you go into a sporting shop or a gun shop in California, you see these signs... Um, all over the place that are saying, recall Gavin Newsom, right? And, and, and the reason for that, it's not just because people are right-wing reactionary assholes, it, it's because they believe in gun rights, right? Mm. They have this whole, this whole beef with California having these strict gun laws. And of course, they always want to want to blame the libs, right? They want to blame the Dems and the libs and whatever. And, and what I tell all, my, all the people in my like circle of affinities um, and then friends of friends who are on that same boat, they're not necessarily all conservative people, but they, but they just hate California gun laws and they want to blame liberals for it. And I'm like, I'm no friend of liberals, right? But what I'll say is that you go to this moment, and this is the origins of, of California's strict, um, strict gun laws. It's a reaction okay. to the Black Panther Party. Right, and right. it was Reagan. Reagan yeah. is the fucker that did it. People like, like, yeah. blame your, blame your favorite, you know, Godfather. Blame Ronald Reagan for this shit. So, so it's, so it's both this kind of collapsing um, of, 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 of the state, of like the state's juridical structure around the specter of armed revolutionary black people who are who are there explicitly for self defense, right? Self defense right. against police violence. Let's remember that. You know what I mean? Um, and, and then, of course, the emergence of, of, you know, affinity organizations, the Young Lords, you know, the Weather Underground, the Brown Berets, American Indian Movement, AIM, um, and so forth, right? So you have emergence of all those movements. Now, now, what university administrations, in dialogue with police in cities and, you know, sheriffs and counties, and, and folks like, um, you know, Stuart Schrader's work, Nicole Siegel's work, Christian Williams's work, um, uh, Christian Parenti's work, you know, Alex Luba's work. There's a bunch of people who have done work around the emergence of kind of the modern police force. But but what what you find in that in that body of scholarship, and what you find also in the kind of experience of people who are survivors of this period, is is that university administrations and these police and sheriffs they're recognizing the importance of university and college campuses to building, expanding, and sometimes inciting radical and revolutionary movements in the United States, but crucially around the world, right? So this is a global recognition. It's not just a local recognition to the UC system or, you know what I mean, or, or, or Austin or New York City or Chicago or whatever. It's a global recognition. So, so the rise of police forces on campuses is a counterinsurgency response, mm. right? In, in, in the deepest sense of that word. Um, 
and, and I feel like what I've been doing a lot in these last several months um, is I've been encouraging people who read and listen and um, absorb conversations like the one we're about to have here um, to go on the uh, go on the internet, download your free copy of the U.S. Army's Counterinsurgency Field Manual. Hmm. It is a it's a free download. It was most recently revised, I believe, it was 2006, maybe 2007, um, and it was Petraeus. Petraeus was the principal author of it. And if you read just just read the introduction of it, right? And you won't you'll read more, right? But once you read the introduction, you'll see that that the description of counterinsurgency absolutely fits the site of the university and the college campus, right? And I'm talking from JC all the way up to the to the university. So campuses generally, higher education campuses generally. Um, so so I think that the history in this overarching sense has to be understood as a collaboration between university administrations, state officials, and police officials to instantiate a form of kind of directed, geographically cited, campus-cited counterinsurgency. We've got to frame it as such because that's what it is. It's always been counterinsurgency from beginning to end. It's never been about this thing that they want to call public safety or crime prevention. Right, right. Right. Wow, thank you very much for that. That's very illuminating. And taking all that information in, that's a lot. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was curious, um, something else I wanted to, to yeah, to, to talk about. I mean, is also just in terms of, since it is related to like city police, like I was curious as to the role of police on campus versus the role of police like in cities, like certainly it's an oppressive force. And I was just curious as to what differences there are, if any, between the, the role that the police play on campuses versus in the city. So, so let's be kind of moment specific in, in thinking yeah. about the question you just raised. And, and, and what I mean by that is this. Um, as, as more and more movements, um, campaigns, coalitions, organizations, and whatnot spring up around, um, around the US and the world that are pushing for some version of, of either a redistribution of police funds, which, which has been collapsed into, this, into the notion of defund the police, which I think is actually dangerous, because defund the police has come to mean a million different things. But if I, so I want to talk about a version of defund the police that is tied to an accountability that redistributes that funding mm -hmm. and that infrastructure toward vulnerable people and policed people, right? So there, there's a spectrum of struggles that are pushing for some version of that, like a redistribute a redistributive re defunding, and and um, and police abolition, which is not they're not mutually exclusive, of course, right? Sometimes they're actually the same thing. Mm -hmm. So so as those movements have have uh, gained traction and coherence and, and and attracted more and more people. University admi administrations are alleging to ask and answer the very same question that you just raised, right? And, and, the, and the reason they do so is this, and this is happening at my campus at UC Riverside. Administrations are saying um, um, in different ways, we may, some of us may be sympathetic to a defunding or maybe even an abolitionist approach to campus policing. However, um, what we fear is that if we got rid of the UC Police Department, that we would then be under the jurisdiction of the Riverside Police Department, the City oh. Police Department, or you know, UCLA, the LAPD, wherever it might be, and they would be worse. And and the, that's the, the the implicit or explicit argument is is to be under the jurisdiction of the City Police would be worse, right? Mm. That that um. So so first of all, we have to question that premise, mm -hmm. right? We we have to actually like interrogate that, right? Um. You know, there's, there's, it's always important to have nuance in our analysis and see is there a, is there a kind of 
detectable spectrum of police violence such that we can reasonably conclude that LAPD will be more or less violent on the UCLA campus than the UCLA PD, right? Riverside PD, will they be more or less violent on the UC Riverside campus than the UCRPD? So we have to actually analyze that, right? But, but, um, but, it, but it's also a bad faith statement, right? Because, because part of what is being asserted is that because city police are presumed to be the monster, the real beast, right? That to get rid of the kinder, gentler campus police mm. would be would would be would be folly. That it would actually contradict the entire aim of trying to prevent people from getting um, beat up, maimed, or killed by campus police. So, so we have to understand that, right? Um, and then and then to get at the question about whether and how there's a difference. Yeah. Um, I, I would I would say I would argue that this absolutely depends on the geography and the demo and the demography mm-hmm. of the particular campus. Mm-hmm. All right. Like I'll say that there's 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 bureaucratic differences as well between how these different forms of police organization implement um, how they how they see their jurisdiction, um, how they how they uh, their use of force policies, their arrest by so forth. But um, it's also an open question whether and how much those differences actually distance campus police forces from city police and county sheriffs. So that, that is, that is a, a locality by locality question that, that people listening to this who are involved in those, those kind of struggles, you don't need to analyze that. Like you need to look at whether there's a detectable difference or if they're essentially um, blue, you know, shared blueprints of the same, of the same police methodologies, mm-hmm. right? Same police tactics and strategies. Um, here's the thing. The reason why I question the degree to which there's uh, um uh, a significant difference between a campus police and a city police force is that if you trace the personnel, right? If you trace if you, if you trace who it is that university police hire and campus police hire, mm-hmm. they are they are oftentimes um, either fired or resigned or even rejected candidates for mm. positions at, at nearby police and sheriff police departments and sheriff's departments, Oof. right? Um, uh, it's oftentimes the case that that universities are university police jobs are seen as the least desirable, all right, for people from for, for people yeah. that are leaving the academy who have been trained into war, right? Let's make no mistake. I've had this is this is, is it's going to sound like a tangent, but it's not. Roman, I've had I've had multiple former cops in my classes, right? I teach I teach on this very topic all the time, right? Um, and I've had multiple former cops in my classes. Who are out with it, and they say, they say, Professor, it, 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 the things that you're talking about here, it is so much worse than you even say or think it is, right? Oof. And they talk, they talk about the training that happens in the academy, yeah. right? How, how it's everything you read about, but when they talk about it from a kind of situated standpoint perspective, and say, you know, you are, you are, um, uh, uh, violated out of your individuality, right? It, it is about being part of a force of blue. And, and it is domestic war, right? My paradigm for this is, has pedagogically has been to talk about it as a form of war, domestic war training. The former cops that that are in these classes, you know, who are still recovering from it, by the way, right? They're all still trying to figure out how to like live their lives and shit because they still see they're they're literally still seeing shit the way that the academy taught them. So, so this is a roundabout way of getting to the point that when people leave the academy. Right, mm-hmm. they don't want to go to a fucking university or college campus. You know what I mean to wage war to police, right? So what happens is that oftentimes it's the campus police departments that inherit the camp deemed by city and sheriffs uh, departments to be, you know, the least the least hireable people, 
right? Oftentimes it's people who are more or less fired from, from city police and sheriff's departments that go to the university police as a kind of last ditch effort mm -hmm. to save their careers. So, so that should demystify the idea that campus police are somehow kinder and gentler. They're oftentimes people who actually have a record of, of, um, of, of complaint, of violence, of harassment, um, and sometimes of, of shooting people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a series of great memes uh, that came up as, uh, through the UCFTP um, Instagram site, which I'll talk about later, mm -hmm. that, that actually, it's, they're, they're like a series of baseball cards of, of individual cops at the UC, University of California Berkeley campus, mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it actually outlines their record of this stuff. So it's like, no, these are not kinder and gentler cops. Um, right. The last point I'll make about this, Roman, which, which I think people need to carry with them, um, there's a key way in which campus police um, uh, campus police are, are, are worse Mm. Than city, city sheriff's department, and it's this: at 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 many, if not most, universities and colleges, um, it is the case that campus police chiefs directly report to the office of the university president or the university chancellor or some other university administrator. Right. So let's think about what that means. Right. It means that the police chief is not really the fucking police chief. Right. It means that in reality a university administrator or really the university president or chancellor is really the police chief. So just take that in for a second and think about what that means, right? What that really means is that there's a direct line of authority and police power between campus police and campus administrators. The administration is the police. All right, let's say it again. The university, campus, college administration are the police. The police report to them, right? Um, it's not that far from what other people say in, um, in in L.A., right, when folks were trying to push Jackie Lacey out as the, as the DA, right? Mm -hmm. It was a – people were demystifying BLM L.A. The L.A. chapter BLM was demystifying that the whole time. They're saying Jackie Lacey is, is, the, is the strong arm of the police, right? So that's why – that's what this is. She's, she's up there in, in an office somewhere, right, prosecuting and doing this. But she is responsible for authorizing and reproducing – this murderous anti-black, you know, anti-trans violence of the LA Police Department, right? So it's a, it is no different from that it, at campuses. So that's that's something that we have to get in our heads as well. And you saw this this past spring with um with with the the so-called Wildcat strike, the COLA strike, cost living mm. adjustment strike that was led by grad students at UC Santa Cruz. Yes. Where yes. where the, the chancellor, my former colleague at UC Riverside, um, Cynthia Larive, uh, was was absolutely, uh, you know administering an incredibly an incredibly overreactive police presence to what was you know a group of desperate grad students trying to strike so they could fucking eat and not have to live in their cars right that the response of the administration was to mobilize a massive riot presence you know anti-riot presence among this police force and to intimidate people militarily on these campuses was you know it, it indicates uh what it is that university administrations actually are they're, they're an extension if not um if not, if not a kind of pinnacle expression of of, of police power. Um, so yes, I would say that we have to keep all of that in mind. That there's a direct, unbroken line between campus police and the campus administration. They're not different. They're actually they're actually the same. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I think also just in terms of like funding, which is like similar to the policing, where there's teachers who are struggling to be able to survive, to pay their own bills, to, to live. And the, they're con there's constantly the, 
police that make more money. So I'm just thinking also in terms of like the funding where it's a similar, a similar piece with trying to reallocate the funds from police towards teachers and people like transit workers and people who actually help others. You know how that's just similar, and especially with academia too. I know quite a few folks who have worked in academia and quite a few students as well. It's just the fact that there are that the money goes to militarized forces instead of to people who actually need it for basic living. It's just that's right. No, that's right. I mean, I mean, here I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example, Roman. Here, here, um, at my home campus in, in UC Riverside, the uh, most recent data um, have told us that over sixty percent of the undergraduate population fits the definition of food insecurity. Mm. Right. So, so I mean, you think about that, right? You think about the fact that we have around sixty plus percent of our undergraduate population that that is food insecure. And yes. um, a significant portion of staff are also yeah. food insecure. And and um, there's some evidence that shows that the graduate student vulnerability to food insecurity might be higher than mm -hmm. the undergraduate student food insecurity. That's not even counting the vulnerability to housing insecurity, right? So, so even if we just focus on food insecurity and think about how there is a complete absence of any university infrastructure, right? Any university kind of, kind of um, um, base foundational funding structure to ensure that at the very least its student population is not food insecure, right? And juxtapose that with the millions and millions, the tens of millions of dollars that go every year into these police presences, right? Which mm -hmm. do nothing to, which do nothing, not only do they do nothing to address or, or resolve those forms of insecurity, they actually they criminalize them. Yeah. They criminalize them, right? Because now, um, Here's another good example. At my campus, my campus is known um, historically for uh, being really important to the citrus industry, right? Like the agricultural science is really huge at UC Riverside. Um, mm -hmm. and, so, and so what you see around campus are these, these amazing, you know, bombastic citrus trees, right? Like grapefruits that are the size of a fucking volleyball, right? Like amazing shit. The stuff, the stuff you walk by it and you can't help but, number one, wonder if you're going to die if you eat it. Or if you're, or if you're daring, you want to peel that stuff off, rinse it, and take a bite. You know what I mean? Yeah. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You actually, you actually, you actually could could get a ticket for doing that, right? Like you can't. You're not actually <sighs> supposed to do that. Right? Now, you know, there's a bunch of reasons for why the campus, for the you know for why the campus is, is doing that. They want to justify in various ways, et cetera, et cetera. But just think about think about the um, absurdity of being at a campus where you are surrounded by fruit. Like yeah. you are literally surrounded by fruit. You have 60 plus percent of your undergraduate student population food insecure. And yet, hypothetically, they all would get a ticket for plucking an orange or a grapefruit from one of those trees and eating it because they're hungry, right? Now, I'm not saying this actually happens. I'm not going there, right? Like, I'm not trying to say that this is something that, but, but my point is the infrastructure of the university actually criminalizes that potential behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's no infrastructure to actually feed people. Right. Even though even though there's material to feed people, there are right. actual fucking Ortiz yes. that are there to feed people. So the, the best that campuses do is they have, um, you know, you know, people busting their tails um, in, among the staff and among some of the students to organize, um, you know, different versions of basically open open food, um, uh, open food, food sites. Right. Like kind of whether it's urban farming or open food sites. That's that's not the infrastructure I'm talking about, right? So I don't want to hear it from people that would respond to what I just said. I said, oh no no no, we have, you know, we have our here. It's called our pantry, our apostrophe pantry, right? Which is an incredible effort that people have put forward, but it is precarious, right? You talk to all the folks that work with our pantry, 
And they will tell you, it's like, we don't have enough staff, right? Mm-hmm. We can't actually implement this thing, you know, to a, even, even a significant fraction of the way we need to, to actually address people's food insecurity. And the thing is, it's not for a lack of will among the faculty, staff, and students, right? This is, it's an administrative um, initiative, right? The administrative initiative is actually to perpetuate this status quo of food insecurity and to, and to devote its, its, uh, its resources and its, and its administrative will to uh, this, this kind of structured policing and criminalization. So, like, so that's, that's where this stuff is at, right? So like, yes. it just amplifies what you just said. I'm, I'm curious then, there must be, in addition to what you've shared, a connection to the administration wanting to have police, like in terms of like the kickbacks that they must get from having the police, as opposed to actually taking care of students and staff. I'm curious as to the connections between police um, and the and the administrative administration in terms of like funding. I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, think the best way to say that, just in terms yeah. of, as in, aside from aside from putting like trying to halt student organizing, as far as like the folks at the top in terms of like the money that they make, there must be something that they're getting from the the police in exchange for hiring them, yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that happens in, in, in lots of different ways. I think the most mundane, everyday way in which you see evidence of that is is um, people in administrative positions who actually have it as part of their charge, right? Part of part of their part of their office's mission statement to engage in um, the kind of decision making that could potentially be in dialogue with a redistributive defunding um, program and or an abolitionist program, right? Though those folks generally do not want to seriously engage in those discussions because. Um, because their, their primary concern, let's be clear, their primary concern is to, is to reproduce themselves, right? So, so part of that is job security, right? They don't want to be on the hook as being the one campus in California or in Illinois or in Texas or in wherever that is ceding ground um, to what Donald Trump would call the radical left. And I don't even know what the fuck that is, right? Right, but they don't want to be. They don't want to. They don't want to watch that narrative of ceding ground to police abolitionists and and, and this defunding redistribution um, reparation kind of movement. Uh, they don't want to be on blast for that. They they um they they would only be willing to do that if if it was understood to be uh, a kind of a kind of um, emerging hegemonic or proto hegemonic position among university administrations. Right, and the only way that would happen is if they somehow absorbed those platforms into a neoliberal agenda that reproduces coloniality, anti-blackness, and all the rest of it, right? So, 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 so the kind of imperative of administrative self-reproduction, and I mean that in every way, right? I'm saying the personalities get self-reproduced. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the forms of, I want to call it really non-decision-making. The non-decision-making is actually the modality through which administrations administer, right? They, they, they're, they're um, highly fluent in creating different ceremonies, whether they're task forces or work groups or public forums or town halls or, you know, or, or, or online, you know, like YouTube statements from different administrators that, that are full of words, right? Full of words, oftentimes full of declarations, oftentimes full of statements of solidarity with our students of color, statements of solidarity with our black students, et cetera, et cetera, but which are never tied 
to actual decision changes in the decision-making structure, right? That's what I mean by non-decision-making. So what we have is a kind of ceremony of self-reproduction among the administration that I think um, gains one of its highest expressions when they respond to things like demands to disband, um, to disband police, to disband police forces. Um, and, and, and this is something that I'll say to folks that are listening to this um, who might be at campuses, mm-hmm. pay, pay really close attention to the way your university administ- and college administration is responding to the events of 2020, right? So the way it's responding to the to the rebellions against police violence and anti-blackness of 2020, um, are, are they creating a task force, right? Mm. Okay, if they are, what is the premise of the task force, right? 99 times out of 100, it will be some version of, um, a, or at least a rhetoric of police reform, right? Um, and and then and then who who composes the task force? Probably. Probably 90 times out of 100, you'll have either the camp, some representative or the actual of the campus police or an actual campus police chief on the task force, right? So, so as that's happening, what you're seeing play out of you is the kind of ceremony that I'm talking about, right? It is, it is, it is a show, right? It's, it's, it's a ritual, right? And it's a ritualization that produces less than nothing, right? And the reason it's less than nothing is it'll absorb people who have tendencies um, that are akin to what you and I are saying here, Roman, right? Like they'll try to draw maybe one or two people kind of like us in to give mm-hmm. credibility, to give credibility to the task force or the work group, right? While everybody else is is assumptively, they're assumptively pro-police, right? Mm-hmm. They might be down for police reform. They might be down for more anti-bias training. They might want more diversity in the personnel, right? But this is an administrative ceremony. Right, and it is no different than what's happening, for example, in the LAPD. Right, I just I wrote about this in the in in um in my book that just came out in October. The first mm. chapter chapter is about um in significant part it's about how the LAPD undertook this really aggressive diversity hiring um a platform through the 2000s to the present called called is called hashtag um uh, hashtag hire LA hire LAPD. Right, it, it's 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 just kind of its own beast. Right. And it's full of propaganda, full of imagery. It shows black and brown women, black and brown LGBTQ people, um, white women, et cetera, draped all over LAPD cars with their uniforms on, and, like interacting with the community, holding holding black babies up, right? Like, like so so what you see happening is that kind of ceremony. And and during this whole time, of course, as as you know, BLM LA and many other organizations, people have told us, LAPDs. You know, it's it's anti-black violence, it's anti-trans violence, it's violence against disabled people, against against sex workers, against um, you know, uh, undocumented people, against you know, Chicanos, Chicanas, Chicanx people, so forth. You know, Central Americans. It's all the way through. Not only has that stuff not um, uh, not not drawn back, it's actually expanded, right? So what you what you what you really see is that these diversity imperatives, these diversity campaigns, what they do is they proliferate police violence. Right. right. They proliferate. They proliferate. And then not only that, they also authorize it in ways because now what you have is a diverse fucking police force. Right. Mm-hmm. So you see that same script. Right. You see that same kind of multiculturalist, anti black, white supremacist, colonial script getting reproduced all the time. And what's happening right now in our very midst on campuses is the same shit. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that, that people need to be talking in principled, collective ways about strategic and tactical responses to that. Right. Because my take is this. Um, 
Um, I think I think I think that folks who are abolitionists or abolition friendly, right, who believe that there needs to be a fundamental questioning of police presence on the campuses, um, they they need to not authorize the right. They need to not concede credibility to these task forces. Mm-hmm. Right. That has to be the starting point, because the moment in the moment in which these task forces are allowed the entitlement of credibility of political, cultural and other forms of credibility, um, it's over. It's over. Right. So. So, you know, um, there's a there's a group of people at every UC campus that's doing that now. Like they're questioning because every task force is basically the same. Right. right. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, we're sympathetic to abolition. Well, bullshit, because you're really not because you have the, the, the police chief is on your committee and you don't have a single person. Um, among among the tenured faculty presence or administrative presence on those task forces who is seriously engaged in thinking about abolition, mm-hmm. right? At the, t- the task force on my campus, the two people who openly identify themselves as um, as abolitionists or abolition-friendly are both fucking graduate students. They're the most vulnerable people on the committee. And, and, mm-hmm. and they're, they're both brilliant people. Um, the problem is that is that these senior people, see them, they see them as graduate students, right? Um, and so you can already have, see how the script is going to play out from there. They're 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 ignorable, right? Um, and frankly, and frankly, you know, as much as I'm saying that, I think I think what we actually need to build on these campuses is um, uh, some form of abolitionist infrastructure, some form of abolitionist community. If you don't like the term infrastructure, don't use it. Abolitionist community, like that's mm-hmm. that's the work that we need to be doing. Um, and and just in a sustainable way, right? So that's yes. so that stuff is something that we know who each other are, um, and we're doing research together. We're we're coming up with you know different measures that are concretely um, obsoleting the police presence, right? Organically, right? At the very same time that we're challenging it administratively. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. I know. So I'm gonna. <laughs> oh yeah, I just wanted to um, go back to a couple of things that you had mentioned, and one was in terms of the idea. I know oftentimes. Some folks would say, oh, it's good to have police have this diversity training. However, as you mentioned, that only leads to more harm because in a way people are adding more funding towards the police. Yeah. So same with like the idea of getting them to use tasers. It's the idea is that it doesn't, in the end, it might sound okay to some folks. However, by giving them more funding, it doesn't help. Yeah. Well. And and then also just wanted to, you mentioned a book that you'd written and I was hoping you could share a little bit about that like the title and where folks could pick it up sure yeah um yeah but the my publisher would be pissed if I didn't at least mention it <laughs> it's called the, the book's called white reconstruction um mm. just came out yeah white reconstruction uh, domestic warfare and the logic of genocide um I'll I'll, I'll I'll send you a link you can put it up when you put this podcast up uh, yes. but, but but the argument of the book is is very much in line with what we've been talking about here which is to say that um the last 50 on ongoing 50 years, right now it's, it's close to 60 years now. That 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 um, have generally been referred to as the post civil rights period, mm-hmm. um, are have tended to be accompanied by the narrative that things to be to be plain about that things have fucking gotten better. You know what I mean? That things are like less anti-black. They're less sexist. They're less <sighs> racist. They're less deadly. They're less genocidal. And the argument that I'm making in this book is that um, contrary to that narrative. What you actually find is that the structures, the rhetorics, the aesthetics, um, the institutionalizations mm-hmm. of, of these basically what are basically um, a kind of confluence of liberal, liberal and conservative racial and gendered racial and gendered racial colonial reforms 
mm-hmm. have 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 served to proliferate domestic war. Yes. What they've done is they they provided new layers of texture to how this ongoing half millennial you know warfare is being waged against targeted populations, black folks, native folks in particular, mm-hmm. um, and, and to trace how those logics unfold in the current moment because it's not classical white supremacy. That's that's part of my my main thesis, right? Is that is that at the moment in which you see a kind of generalized obsolescence of official classical white supremacy, meaning meaning you know state apartheid, right? What you actually had is a, a, a rush to rearticulate the logic mm-hmm. of white supremacy, of anti-blackness, and of racial racial colonial violence. Um, uh, so so it's to say then that the resurgences of white nationalism that you saw during um, this 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 still current Trump administration. I'm still not convinced, you know, <laughs> it's going away mm-hmm. here in the mid November, November, 2020. Sorry. I'm still not convinced it's going away. I'm still not convinced that there's not going to be an intensification of an already existing civil war. But, but I'll say that these resurgences of, of open right-wing white nationalism are in no way surprising, mm-hmm. right? Number one, number one, because they've been there um, and they've accelerated during the very moments in which the narrative is one of liberal racial reform, right? They accelerated as soon as Barack Obama was elected, mm-hmm. right? Oh, your mic cut off for a second. I have a bit of a technical difficulty. We'll be back no. in a moment. Am I still, am I back? Yeah, okay, now you're back, yeah. So I hope you can edit that, sorry. I'm gonna have to, I just realized when my phone rings, Roman, <laughs> I'm gonna turn my Bluetooth off, my bad. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> so you were right, mentioning, anyway, hope... you know, when, when Obama was elected, then a lot of folks yeah. assumed, oh, okay, now everything's all right, even though he had plenty of policies that caused great harm to yeah. the whole world. Well, 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 for that for sure, but but also the fact that, that that right-wing white nationalist militariza- militarizations and organizing and mobilization actually accelerated as soon as he got elected. Same in the 1970s, right? Manning Marable wrote about it. Um, uh, uh, I mean, he, he writes how in the 70s into the 80s, you actually had an acceleration of, of you know, far right-wing white nationalist, reactionary, anti-black, um, you know, anti-Indian organizing, the Klan, um, militia groups, you know, patriot groups, and so forth. That shit actually expanded in the post-civil rights period, right? So, so what, what we see, yeah. So, what, so what we see is like it's actually a persistent, um, a persistent characteristic of, mm-hmm. of 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 the ongoing U.S. national project. Um, yes. It's it's actually part and parcel of what it is. And 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 by the way, right, all those forms of org, organ, you know, of mobilization and organizing have have from the very inception of the police been organically tied to the police. Mm-hmm. Right, M- meaning that you have pe- you have people in police forces to this day, um, in some places more than others, who actually share competing affiliations, organi- organizational affiliations with their job as a as a as a police officer, and with some version of a far right wing, yep. uh, usually white nationalist organization. Right, they're part yes. of the same thing. I mean, that's that's where the cops the cops came from the fucking Klan. They came right. from the Rangers. Right, they came from frontier war and apartheid policing. Yeah. This is not to say we're just fucked though, Roman. Like we're not. <laughs> this is just to say we need to understand. We have to have a. I mean, I'm, I'm taking in your side and, and, and yeah, like, it's you know what I mean. But 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 like this is we just need to understand yeah. the condition that we're that we're struggling in, right? Right. Right. If you don't if you don't understand that, then then 
then you you might as well be dead, right? Like right. The, the you know, I mean, you're already targeted to be dead. So you know, some of us more than others, right? Some of us structurally, some of us in a piecemeal way. Um, but but to say that that we have to have an adequate analysis, yes, of of the of the terrain on which we are trying to struggle, right? Like that's that that's the point of that of of my book, right? As you as you raise it, right? Like it's it's the period that we're in is not it's not post civil rights. It's called I think we should be calling it white reconstruction. That's my argument. Mm-hmm. We're in the period of white reconstruction, and it is still ongoing. Yes. Right. So, I'm, in in a way, I'm kind of arguing not just for a change of analysis, but also a change of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we actually need to use different language to name what's happening. This is fucking yes. white reconstruction. Tr- Trump is just one part of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I think uh, my my sigh and my pause was more to <laughs> giving it a moment. It's not anything that's surprising to me. It's more just the. Right on. Take you know, taking it in and having that moment. I think part of I mean, there are so many reasons that we're we're at where we're at right now. Part of it is like the propaganda yeah. and the misinformation and the miseducation that's constantly being taught. This country never coming to terms or admitting its inception and how it began and what how it's continued. And then another part of it, and part of that reason is just the the narrative, the false narrative that's maintained in this country, and then also through the media. The, the false and like the yeah. propaganda with militarization and with, with propaganda that yeah. is, it's so far reaching. And to, to what you said about having the, being able to come to terms with it, we have to, I think for like, I am, I just turned 40 and like, so for many of us who grew up on television, how much TV was based on celebrating cops and movies as well, oh, the military yeah. as well. And how much of that, just goes into it's just it's so pervasive and there's so much Roman let's look at that for a minute though because this is I, I like thinking about this shit right because we're inundated we're inundated with copaganda as you put it right and we're entering a new a yet yet another new phase of it with the Biden with Biden and Kamala Harris right okay yep. so they're, they're like they're all about copaganda both of them that's arguably that's one of the reasons why they were able to you know to to, to, to win this last election right in part um uh, but let's think about that inundation, I'm not that much older than you, right? So like I'm I'm in the same cultural text, more or less, than you are, right? Growing up, I remember when cops started the TV show cops, y'all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Fox, the Fox TV, the first oh. well, what is it widely called, you know, one of the first, if not the first reality TV show programs, cops, right? Yeah. That that glorified that glorified police violence, right? And like all these criminologists and cultural studies people have tracked just how many. Uh, basically illegal acts police commit on a typical on a typical episode of cops right so like we grew up in that we grew up in um the thing i was gonna bring up was video games right like we grew up from 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 you know from atari 2600 all the way through now playstation 5 you know what i'm saying the 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 copaganda and the military propaganda in video games is front and center right and there's a reason for that right we we know there's it's a lot of those a lot of those, those those gaming technologies are directly derived from uh, from military technologies and vice versa, right? They're actually training soldiers and shit. Um, but I want to think about how how um, how different people, uh, based on their position in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're black, because they're trans, because they're women, etc. And 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 maybe because of their politics, right? Or their ideology, or their kind of their 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 cultural affinities, right? Maybe they're punk, right? Maybe they're abolitionists. Maybe they're mm-hmm. Um, uh, black nationalists, maybe they're uh, radical radical feminists, maybe they're trans trans abolitionists. Right? The way the way different people inhabit that that pro police cultural text 
is maybe what we should be looking at, right? Maybe we should be looking at how people inhabit this pro-police, this propaganda in, in these defiant and oppositional ways. And I'm talking from the inception, from 1988 onward, right? Or, or whatever, right? Whatever year you want to pick. Um, and, and I'll give you examples, right? I remember, I remember being in college, depending on which TV I was at, yeah. Right. If if cops was on, depending depending which TV I was at and who was there, right? Mm-hmm. If 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 I was in a room with a lot of my black classmates, right, black and Puerto Rican classmates, mm-hmm. um, we were fucking hooting and hollering, rooting for the so-called criminals to get the fuck away from the cops. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. We were like, and we were fuck the police. Every yeah. other word, fuck the police. They get yes. We were rooting them on, rooting them on, rooting them on. Um. Mm-hmm. We, we were maybe a little more ambivalent when they were coming after the white people, but we'd still be rooting for the white people a lot of times too, right? I'll be yeah. real. But, but, then, but, then, but then in these other rooms, right, where, where it's like it's not the same demography, like people would just yeah. be kind of quiet and watching it and just like laughing. They'd just be laughing yeah. at basically it's entertainment to them. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's that example, right? So like let's maybe pay more attention to that spirit, right, that irreverent mm-hmm. spirit of fuck the police that is actually pervasive, right? People want to talk about it like it's some kind of – profanity that we shouldn't be you know giving room to it's like no man like if, you, if you're in the world and, and i say this to all y'all suburban folks that are out there listening to this year too i know you say fuck the police right like i was in a room in the suburbs when nwa came out with that song and i saw you suburban white folks running around saying fuck the police because it's actually there's actually some of that there maybe for the wrong reasons but it's there right so so another example that i'll give you that that i love talking about because it speaks to my old age is, um, um, you know, like I, I, I remember, um, I remember when, when these, um, these video games came out, uh, Grand Theft Auto in particular, right. Mm-hmm. You know, Grand Theft Auto, right. Like in Grand Theft Auto, anybody out there is familiar with it. If you, if you commit so-called crimes in the game, little, little, little cop stars start flashing up and you start getting chased around by the police in the city. Right. And so you're supposed to avoid that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You're supposed to avoid getting chased by the cops. You're supposed to avoid getting caught committing so-called crimes and whatnot. But, but I remember some of us would play the game opposite to the narrative. And, and mm-hmm. our, our game would be we would, like, we would like, you know, destroy as much stuff as possible, try to get all the police chasing us. And the game was to last as long as possible before the police fucking killed you in the video oh. game. So, so I'm just saying, like, I know it's, it's a trivial example. It's a fucking video game, right? I, I get it. But I'm saying that there's something about what animates that way of playing, like literally that way of playing, that I think we should be paying attention to, right? And that I think is is just, um, in some ways, is just as important as tracking what is happening in organized movements against police violence, right? Against so-called police brutality and so forth and so forth. These things have to be going together. We have to be tapping into the oppositional, the um, the irreverent, the iconoclastic, um, and the profane ways that different people inhabit um, the, the, the cultural fabric of, of pro-police, you know, genocidal and proto-genocidal violence that is normalized, right? So, like, mm-hmm. until we do that, I think the, the, movements, the, the movements will, um, will struggle, right? Because, mm-hmm. because you got you to gotta tap into what people feel when they're saying, fuck the police, right? And when they're, when they're yeah. playing Grand Theft Auto like that, right? Or when they're, when they're doing other stuff. I mean, like, when they're singing songs, when they're, when they're dancing, whatever it might be. Yes. Yeah. And I think a, a big piece of that, too, is providing the alternative. Like I know in, in Oakland, uh, APTP, they're providing mental health counseling 
for folks on the weekends and stuff. So it's also just providing, like, building the alternative so folks don't have to. Because I think part of it's also, from a young age, a lot of us are taught to call the police in case something is uh, going wrong or something. And I think if we, I mean, you know... It's like, like there's no option, right? Like, right. It's, not, it's not only that we're taught that, we're, we're also told that's the only, that's the only thing. Right, there's nothing else. The only thing is dial nine one one. That's it. Yeah, you're you're absolutely. Yeah, and um, so the, so then it also just goes back to like communities holding each other accountable and how yeah. difficult that is and how, I mean, it's in so many ways it does feel easier to like not have to deal with something firsthand. It's easier for folks to want to like either outsource it or to bring someone else in to solve a conflict as opposed to folks working it out on their own. I think that's also part of the work is finding ways within our own communities to, to have conflict resolution and transformative justice instead of getting the state involved. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, this is the thing is that, is that what I really appreciate recently are um, the scholarly activists, the organizers, um, and the organizations that, that, have, that, have, that have been thinking and acting in some exper radically experimental and nuanced and I think sustainable ways around accountability, around like a kind of abolitionist and radical feminist and trans kind of conceptualization of accountability, like what that actually means, um, how it is that the state's script of criminalization is in, in most ways, it's the opposite of accountability, right? Like, mm -hmm. like when we're in community with people and we want to talk about what accountability looks like, right? It generally is the opposite of what's happening if one follows the 911 script, right? If mm -hmm. one does what we're taught when we're in kindergarten, we're just calling 911. Um, and so... I have deep respect for all those folks. You know, um, I know Dean Spade's been on here before. Like, like mm. Dean, Dean's work has been really critical in this. Like, it's instructed me a lot. Like, we we trust time, and I think Dean's work around mutual aid mm -hmm. is is like it's really critical. Like, it's required reading at this at this time um, because you know mutual aid is so much more than um, than most people think it is. Right? It's 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 um, it's not only something radically different than philanthropy, right? Um, or, or charity, but but it's actually a gesture toward building the kind of of, of of abolitionist community that you're talking about, right? Meaning 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 accountability, mm -hmm. right? Community that is based on a notion of accountability where we fucking care about each other, yes, right? And and, and that and, and where we we want to figure out why bad shit sometimes happens, right? And we want to prevent bad shit from happening, right? You know what I mean? Like like where we're asking that. That radical question, really, in some ways, a revolutionary question, you know, what conditions of existence do we need to construct in this community so that we minimize or, you know, maybe even just altogether obsolete the form, the very forms of interpersonal and systemic structural violence that we struggle to, that some of us asymmetrically, right, in an uneven way, struggle to survive and live through every day, right? Mm -hmm. How do we create those that is that is the abolitionist question. That's the radical question. That's probably a revolutionary question. But I'm saying that's accountability. Yes. In the sense that in the sense you're talking about it, right? Not in the sense the way the state's talking about it, in the sense you're oh. talking about it, the way Dean Spade's talking about it, the way Miriam Cobb is talking about it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my other friends and colleagues, right? The people I love. Like that's how they're talking about it. Yeah. It's and it's a really about like rehabilitation. I mean, this also just goes into the whole conversation around prison abolition as well, since it's all connected. And the yeah. idea that Ideally, you want to create the kind of world where folks get care for what they need and looking at the root of the root of the problem or the issue as to why people behave a certain way they do. 
and prisons are like the opposite, where it just ends up causing more harm for people right on. loved ones and separating people. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'll give you, I'll give you um, the example I've been drawing on for the last seven months uh, because I was privileged. Um, I also, I'm also, I'm also um, right now I'm president of the American Studies Association, and because mm -hmm. of because of because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. This initiative that I started in collaboration with my colleagues um, in the ASA leadership, uh, the series of what we call, what we call freedom courses. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you the link. You can post it here too. Yes. It's, basically, it's basically a sequence of of conversations of, of kind of sort of like webinars, but more political education oriented. Mm. Um, that's intended for use uh, in different kinds of classrooms, different organizational settings, and whatnot. And the reason I bring it up is the first one. The first one we did is the one that I had the privilege of kind of organizing and hosting, and it was about mutual aid, right? Because because I felt like I needed to be in conversation with a group of people that had been doing mutual aid work and thinking and theorizing mutual aid work um, for a much longer time than I have, right? And, and of course, one thing that came out of the conversation is I didn't, these folks forced me to realize that a lot of the work I've been doing over the last 25 years, again, almost my whole adult life, is actually under the category of mutual aid, I just didn't think about it that way, mm. right? So it's like a student of this political education. I'm like, oh shit, I, I can actually embrace this idea and this praxis now. I'm actually part of it. I didn't even fucking know it, right? But the reason I bring it up here is, um, is, is I, I came into contact with um, uh, an organization called Ujima Medics. They're based mm -hmm. in Chicago, right? Founded, um, uh, found, founded by, by two, um, two young black women, um, responding to the fact that the Chicago police are not only a deadly, anti-Black, violent, everyday, normalized force in the city, mm -hmm. um, but, but in, a, in an everyday kind of way, Black folks in Chicago that needed help, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about like life or death help, right? Mm -hmm. um, were, were, were digging their own graves if they were being forced to rely on the police or even on 911. I'm talking about even emergency medical mm -hmm. attention um, uh, to get their care. So, so you know, what you, what, you, what you find through Ujima Medics' practice is these two folks, Amika Tendahi, who was part of this freedom course that I, that I um, was able to facilitate, and, uh, and Martin Cabral, they're the, they're the two co-founders. I'll, I'll give you a link so folks can look at their work. Great. But but these these two these two black women, drawing from the long history of, of black black feminist black women's abolitionist forms of community building mutual aid and care, create this organization, and it's and it's it is at its root it is an emergency medical response group, mm -hmm. right? And the two things that they respond to most urgently are what they identified as two of the leading causes of black premature death in Chicago. One being gunshot wounds, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about people who are shot, who bleed out, but but need, but but who could have survived it if they had gotten proper and adequate emergency medical attention, right? Because folks oftentimes don't think about that, right? That that most the vast majority of people who um, are 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 victims of gunshot wounds, if they receive urgent medical care, can actually survive those wounds, right? But but what they identify a lot of a lot of black folks in working class and poor you know, communities were dying because they weren't getting better birth care. So that was one thing, gunshot wounds. Mm. The other thing that's, you know, folks ignore all the time, it was asthma attacks. Mm. Right? So what you what you follow with, with the work of Ujima Medics 
as a kind of emergency abolitionist mutual aid organization that Martina and Amika start is they started training people. They started training people in the community from, I'm talking from like little kids, elementary school age kids, all the way to elders, right? They started training people on how to administer emergency aid for gunshot wounds and emergency aid for asthma attacks. And, and like, I think they've, they, how, there, there's, an, there's, a, there's a, 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 a quickly accumulating um, archive of accounts of people whose lives have been saved by the work of this grassroots organization. I'm saying if we take Ujima Medics as a model mm -hmm. for the kind of work that can be done um, in response to not only the inadequacies of existing kind of medical responses, emergency medical responses, but, but as an everyday grassroots highly effective and literally life-saving alternative to 911, mm -hmm. right? So, so once again, if we follow the, the black radical, black feminist, black abolitionist exemplification mm -hmm. of this kind of obsoleting of, of anti-black white supremacist colonial state formation, right, state violence, then, then, then other communities, other organizations, other movements can probably mm. get somewhere good. Right, you can probably get somewhere, and it also demystify the whole thing, right? Because because right. folks they always want to think about uh, this this notion that there's something other than the police, other than nine one one, as being in some distant, far off horizon that is really unreachable, right? It's like no man, like people are doing it right now, and they're doing it because they have to. They're not doing it because right. they're because they're because they're fucking exotic hippies that are coming up with some bulls. No, no, no. This is this is Martina and Amika doing it because they saw black folks are dying, mm -hmm. right? The, the cops the cops don't give a shit, right? They kill, they actually kill black people in the community. 911 doesn't respond. The emergency folks come in and folks are already dead. What do we, so it came out of necessity, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's, that's part of the ethic that needs to be, um, I think, multiplied. Yes. You know, again, drawing from this black radical and black abolitionist tradition. Yes, yes, well said. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, and I think once that's folks are aware of it, it also just makes it so much easier for other folks to create their own uh, ways of helping one another. Yeah, yeah. By the by the you, you know, and you and you just raised another another point though, Roman, by saying that um, the reason I mentioned organizations like Ujima Medics and resources like uh, around mutual aid, like the kind that Dean Spade has 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 been has been circulating, mm -hmm. um, but folks need to not feel so overwhelmed in this moment um, in addressing these issues, th there's no need to, you know, proverbially reinvent the wheel all the time. Right, right. right. Really not. There's all these concrete examples all around us mm -hmm. of, of people, of people that are, that are organizing these things. I'm talking about people who don't have millions of dollars at their disposal, you know, the way, the way the Trump kids do, right? These are folks who, who have sometimes nothing at their disposal other than community in a sense of obligation. And they just they mobilize, they organize, and they create these they create these abolitionist infrastructures and practices. Yes. Um, and I also say this to folks who are who are located in institutions that have some modicum of like a, of a funding infrastructure, whether it's a campus, whether it's a nonprofit organization, or something else. I would I would urge you um, to actually redistribute some of your funding by by hiring consultants from these grassroots movements, from these abolitionist organizations to come and consult with your organization, mm. right? To come and talk to you about, in a, in a real way, like only only if you're serious, right? Because I don't want to 
be putting my folks out there to come and talk to you if you're not about if you're if, if you're about bullshit, right? If you're coming in to have them do some show and then you're gonna ignore them, forget it. But I'm saying if you're happen to be in a place where your organization actually wants to learn what it would be like to institute and and um and build sustainably build an abolitionist form of so-called community or public safety, an abolitionist mm -hmm. you know form of emergency response or whatever it might be, um, then then bring some of these folks in, right? Compensate them the way that that universities and colleges compensate, uh, you know, the bullshit consultants that they bring in for administrative job searches, right? Compensate yeah. them like that. Compensate them like that, and and the the wealth that'll come back to your organization will be tenfold, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that's just a plug because I think that there's a weird way that all of these hegemonic institutions like like universities, colleges, and even some some big nonprofits that are really you know have a ton of funding, they want to replicate this whole power relationship where where um like the most innovative and radical thinkers are the ones that they think should come in for fucking free. Yep, yep. You know what I mean? It's it's like I mean I know some of some of us will. <laughs> Some of us will just out of a sense of duty or whatever it might be, but right. no, that's actually not cool, right? Like these are folks who are spending time and they they need to be sustained as well to the extent that we still live in a fucking money economy and people gotta pay yeah. rent. Yeah. Then then there needs to be a redistribution of that of that funding infrastructure. So it's not just going to, you know, search firms anymore, right? Right. Or or for that matter, the fucking police, right? Let's let's think about how to do that too in a um as a basic organizational ethic, I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Um, I was hoping one of the other questions I had, kind of moving topics a little bit, but it's all still connected, is what's been done that you're aware of in terms of getting cops off campus in other schools, either nationally or internationally, that we can look to towards? I guess it's connected in terms of recognizing that other folks have already have continued to do this work and other lessons that can be learned. There's a lot. There's a lot that we need to learn. So I think I think the picture around um, relatively current and ongoing efforts to get rid of police from campuses it's a changing picture, and it's it's mm -hmm. um, it's hard to it's hard to well it's impossible to really portray it with a with a so-called broad broad brush, right? So we so we should yeah. just not do that. I think I think I think I would resist doing that. Um, okay. But I will say I will say this. I will say that um, there are examples of you know, large public and private universities all around the world, in, in a few precious cases, even inside the United States and North America, in which there is no police presence, mm -hmm. right? And in which there is um, a, a kind of official, whether it's a, a memorandum of understanding or something else, right? That mitigates, if not, if not effectively isolates the campus from uh, incursion by the surrounding city police force, right? Mm -hmm. So, that's a changing picture, but it exists. Now, the reason why that's not a that's not an easy blueprint is that in many cases, those very campuses are the ones that are so that are, that are in such places of extraordinary privilege, right? That that basic racial, class, and gendered antagonisms mm -hmm. are not nearly as heightened as they might be at many other kinds of public research universities that are in places where you have the so-called back in the day they used to call the town and gown dynamic. Right, the town and gown, right? Meaning the gown, meaning the graduation. Yeah, it's a it's a phrase that that academia or universities often use. It's it's mm -hmm. this it's this relationship that they talk about to kind of um, it's a euphemism. It's a euphemism for for you know class and racial antagonism, right? Mm -hmm. One of the best examples would be Yale, mm -hmm. right? Yale is in New Haven, 
Yeah. Right. And New Haven, New Haven to this day remains one of the most hyper segregated anti black conditions mm-hmm. in the entire United States. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the, the levels of criminalization, of incarceration of black folks in New Haven and in surrounding towns and cities um, is off the fucking charts. Right. And in that very same place, you have Yale. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have, town, you, have, you have the town. Right, mm-hmm. which is hypersegregated, it's anti-black, it's criminalization, it's incarceration. Then you have the gown, where the mm-hmm. where the university and the academy are situated. I see. Um, so, so, so then you. So that's what I'm saying. You go to a place like that, right? And and the reason for the police presence, the the administrative reason for the police presence, is very different than it might be um, at a place like Oxford University, mm-hmm. right? And again, it's because it's because of the geography and because of the ways in which it's cited um, as as a place. Of particular kinds of kinds of class and racial and gender antagonisms. So, so that's to say that there's not a kind of singular blueprint for this, right? There's not a singular way to kind of assess what's going on. But what I will say is that what what campaigns and the research generated by police abolition campaigns is 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 gathering as we speak. Um, is is data number one on how university budgets are actually organized, right? Um, mm-hmm. around, around policing, um, thinking creatively about what a redistribution and a reparative approach to that infrastructure and that funding would look like in creating things like food security and housing security, both for the campus community and for the surrounding community. Ta-da! That's, that's, if there's a magic formula, Roman, it's probably that. Mm-hmm. Like, all the neoliberal bullshit that, that universities especially give around so-called community engagement, right? Mm-hmm. Which, unless you have somebody who is deeply committed to that, and I'll, and I'll give a shout out to Ted Gordon at University of Texas, because he really does this shit, right? He actually does the community engagement stuff, right? Like he, but he's one, he, he's one of the rare people that will do that. For the most part, when you hear community engagement, you better start, you know, as Fanon would say, you better start cleaning your guns and sharpening your knives because you know that you're running into a wall of bullshit, right? Because they don't really mean that and it's going to be a propaganda campaign and they're going to do a dog and pony show and it's going to piss off the surrounding community, right? Mm-hmm. Especially the surrounding community that actually gets criminalized and gentrified by the university. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> so part of these abolitionist movements on campuses, um, part of what they're doing is they're, they're, I think, increasingly privileging this notion that that any reparation, any redistribution needs to not be provincialized to the so-called campus community. That you actually need to have, you talked earlier about accountability. You need to have actual structures of accountability between, between the university or the campus site and its people and the surrounding community. And of course, what gets lost in all this sometimes is that in places like UC Riverside, mm-hmm. right? Um, to some extent, even places like UCLA, right? There's no distinction between those two populations, right? Because I know UC Riverside's a, basically a commuter campus. So, so, so the vast majority of the students, right, and, and the staff, even some of the faculty, are from the area, mm-hmm. right? Some of them, many of them, are from the sur- immediate surrounding community. They're from Riverside, from Moreno Valley, right? They're from Corona. They're from Riverside County, right? So, so that kind of accountability—it's not anything that's actually that hard to imagine because you're actually. What you're, what you're actually uh, uh, building on is an already existing overlap, an organic overlap. But again, what this does is it pushes back against uh, uh, the kind of embourgeoisying script of the university, right? Which, which is taking people from working class, from undocumented, from you know, from from criminalized backgrounds and whatnot, 
and it is trying to turn them into a the bourgeois a petty bourgeoisie, right? That's it, it's it's like how do you how 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 do you domesticate and civilize yourself so you're no longer part of your riffraff background? Like that's what every first so-called first generation college student goes through as soon as mm. they enter the university, right? And so, um, you know, those of us that are teachers in those places, like we have to have these really strong pedagogies to help to help mentor students against that tendency, right? Because students get torn, for the most part, they get torn up by that. They don't want to do that, mm -hmm. right? They still love their family. They still love their friends. They still love their community. And yet you have an entire university apparatus that is counseling them to actively participate in the policing and criminalization of the very communities from which they come, mm. right? That's, that's counterinsurgency and that's war. Right. That's how the university is part of counterinsurgency. It is part of counterinsurgency. It is part of war. It is a kind of a, a the, it's the brain trust of domestic war in some ways that way. Um, so then, so then, if we're thinking about police abolition campaigns and, and and the idea of getting cops off campus, I think this is the thing you need to build from. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it, it's it's a deep and collectivized and deprovincialized sense of accountability, um, which then would mean that surrounding communities would be similarly engaged in pushing back against the police presence in their communities outside the campus. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole premise of the cops off campus campaign. You know, I mean, we had, we had, I'll be, I'll, I'll be open about this. We had some extensive conversations, debates, um, back and forth around whether the campaign we undertook should be focused on getting cops off campus or whether it should be broadly focused on police abolition. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and to be honest, I, I, I'm wishy-washy on this. Like I could have gone either way, right? Because I saw the merits in both. Mm -hmm. But, but what we decided yes. was to do this campaign to abolish police from University of California campuses within a year, right? Mm -hmm. Within an academic year. And, and the idea is that by doing that, as a kind of bare minimum, um, we we would we would be able to connect with surrounding communities that um, that may be friendly. To thinking about police abolition, um, that we may be facilitating the organizing and mobilization of, of, of communities, groups, and movements in mm -hmm. different places that'll push for that. And, and importantly, because we saw it as a potentially winnable, winnable situation, right? That, that, that there's actually a feasible opportunity to get rid of campus police forces. Mm -hmm. That it would that it would exemplify to people around the world, not just in California, but around the world, it would exemplify. Mm -hmm the possibility of actual on-the-ground police abolition, right? So that's that's why it's settled on cops off campus rather than cops off the planet. Mm -hmm. um, but but because it wasn't it wasn't necessarily either or at this point, right? right. It's like let's do let's do this thing to exemplify how a how, how places how places without police are actually possible and doable. Yes. Yes. Yeah that makes a lot of sense. Um so yeah, so I know that that's not necessarily a satisfying answer to your original question, right? Like, which is, um, you know, examples of, of how campuses and universities do this, but that's because it's so much of it is in motion. I mean, you can, the, the oh. easy answer would have been University of Minnesota, um, okay. right? Like Twin Cities, where, where the struggles there have been, um, they've been simultaneously super militant around defunding and potentially police abolition, but they've also been subject to all kinds of liberal, liberal infiltration. Mm. Which is to say, pro-police kind of infiltrations, right? Which turned yes. into police form bullshit, and then, you know, creating agreements with um, or, or non-agreements with local police forces and whatnot. So, 
So I think it's a changing picture, but I think um, as people think about this, they, they need to be they need to be apprised of what's going on in their in their locality. I don't think that there's that there's one blueprint for this. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. As far as it's like pushing back against like neoliberalism and infiltration, how I mean that's I guess it's a multi-pronged approach to that. I'm curious as to ways that one can do that aside from simply. I mean, I, I'm the type of person I get very frustrated very easily where mm. if someone's kind of coming up against the truth and it's like, oh. and like I don't want to go in and like, I'm just curious, that's like the best way to kind of draw people in in terms of people who might be willing to work, you know, work with the cause, work for the cause. And at the same time, right. Right. I think just given the history of this country and how much uh, resistance there has been, like how do... Yeah, just how to how to garner support and at the same time be cautious. Yeah, um, I think I think I think people who have the benefit of having been part of communities of serious and rigorous analysis of yeah. these institutions, I think we need to commit to being outward about it. Okay, so that's like that's just a basic principle, I think, at this point. It's a pedagogical principle, right? Like all everybody who has has the benefit of being part of those communities, um, and I'll call them abolitionist communities for now, right? Mm -hmm. If you're if you're if you're if you have some affinity or have benefited from being in a community with abolitionist people, and you have an analysis of these institutions, of these structures, like the police, right? Mm -hmm. Like so-called criminal justice, like you know, imprisonment and detention and incarceration and so forth, then. Then I mean, a number one, it's worth saying over and over again, is that you have to share that insight and that analysis, even even when even when it's gonna hurt, mm -hmm. right? Like I understand what it's like to be the one. Believe me, I understand what it means to be the one crazy fucker in the room that's talking abolition because I was doing it, mm -hmm. right? I was doing it in 1998. I was doing it in 2008. I was doing that in 2018. Now in 2020, all of a sudden, I'm not the only abolitionist in the room. Right? Yes, which raises yes. a whole bunch of other questions. But my point is, yeah. right? My point is, like, it's it was more far more often than not, it was not necessarily a comfortable situation to be right. in right. to be articulating this analysis that went mm -hmm. so complete. You know, it, it was so in a rudimentary way. It was so against the common sense of everyone else in these rooms, mm -hmm. right? That that um, you you would run. It was painful at times because you'd run the risk of being dismissed. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember being in a room. I remember being in a room with. Um, I was on the um, uh, uh, the editorial committee for the University of California Press. Right, mm -hmm. and, and we were we were we were. You know, your job is to basically read book manuscripts and decide if they should be published or not. Um, and I remember there's one point late. Oh, my sorry, I cut out again late, for a moment. Oh, okay. Uh, I was saying your job as a part of the editorial committee is to read book manuscripts yes. and decide if they should be mm -hmm. published or not. I remember there's one exchange in particular where I brought up the fact that there's this kind of emerging scholarly literature. In, in abolition, mm -hmm. right? Like, and I mentioned a bunch of the authors, like all names that y'all are familiar with here. Um, and I remember one colleague who I thought was one of my more open and kind of more intellectually curious colleagues completely fucking dismissed it, right? right? He just, oh, this is just one of these trends and it's gonna go away. It's kind of like the way white people used to talk about hip hop and rap <laughs> back in the mm -hmm. mid 80s, man. When they'd, they'd hear LL Cool J or they'd hear Run DMC, they'd be like, oh, this is a trend, it's gonna go away. It's like, nope, nope, it's still here. Um, so, but so I mean, like I, I've been, I've been in these rooms where people just dismiss that shit, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's to say that, it's to say that, if you have the benefit of this insight, of this analysis, I think you're obligated to share it, yeah. even in those rooms where you run the risk of being trivialized, trivialized and dismissed, and also fucking fight back, 
Mm-hmm. Right? Like, go ahead and cuss somebody out if you think you can get away with it. I've done it more than once. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, and sometimes you just gotta let the chips fall. And I know, you know, there's there's that's probably not the best advice I could give, but I think it's actually good advice at times, right? Yeah. I think that there's something to be said about getting pissed um, and, and forcing people to take you seriously if they don't want to, even if they don't want to. Um, yes. uh, but, but, but I think that that's really critical. So that's, that's, that's the principal thing at this moment is, is, mm-hmm. is that, and, and I think the other thing is this, there's a really specific thing we, that, that, that people need to attack. And it's this notion of reform, uh, this notion of reform as kind of the horizon and the limit of what can be done. That's called reformism, right? That's the distinction between reform and reformism. Reformism is that belief. It's that dogma. It's, I would say it's beyond ideology. It's actually dogma. It's like a religion, right? Where, where, where it's, it's, it's already established as a premise, as an assumption, that reform is the horizon of what can be done to deal with you know, in an asymmetrical form of institutionalized systemic um, or everyday violence, right? Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the fight against reformism is no less than the fight against counterinsurgency, mm-hmm. okay? It, it is the fight against that which undermines liberation struggle, abolitionist liberation struggle, feminist, you know what I mean, trans liberation struggle, right? Disability justice struggle in, 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 in its most nuanced form. And, and the way, one principal way one skill set that everybody that is absorbing this talk of ours can take away um, is a rhetorical skill set to confront reformism by saying the very thing that you are trying to reform, meaning in this case, let's talk about police violence, right? Yeah. The very thing you are trying to reform is actually the expression of reform. Police violence in all the ways that, that, that people are responding to it now is the direct outcome of decades of police reform. Right. 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 They are not separable. This is not failed reform. This is the result of reform. This, yeah. this, thing, that, this thing that people call mass incarceration, by the way, that's the wrong phrase, and I'll say that to the, to the day I die. Mass incarceration is the wrong, the wrong phrase, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not the masses being incarcerated. That's why, right? It, it's a way of sneaking, sneaking liberal, you know, kind of white humanism in through the back door. No, it is, it is asymmetrical, you know, carceral warfare. It is, not, it is not mass incarceration. It is targeted incarceration. Right. Okay. It is anti-black incarceration. Um, it is colonial incarceration. So, so even there, right, we talk about we talk talk about 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 in, you know incarceration, targeted incarceration as part of mm-hmm. domestic war. The way it's happening in these last 40 years is a direct expression of all the criminal justice reforms that happened during the 60s and 70s and which were ongoing through the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. Right. Mm-hmm. So so this thing that people want to call mass incarceration that I'm calling domestic war is the reform that yeah. actually is the reform counterinsurgency is the reform so so i think we need to challenge the premise mm-hmm. everywhere we go in every room we go right yes. we need, like if you're on campus and you're dealing with one of these bullshit task forces your job is to challenge the premise of the task force right your job is to say to the task force you are positing as an assumption something that is absurd right mm. you're positing the notion of police reform as if they are separable. The police are the reform, right? Police violence is the expression of the reform. What we need to be thinking about is a campus without police, mm-hmm. right? That's the only way to actually address the anti-black violence, you know, the, the, the misogynist violence and so forth that is produced and replicated and, 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 and sometimes expanded by the presence of these police forces. So I think, I think that, that's both a rhetorical and analytical skill set that anybody can bring to the table. Mm. Thank you. It's very helpful to hear. 
breathe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so, I mean, it's so important, too, just because it's, it's like life or death. And it's also just like that's been going on for generations, too, is that it's like, whew, there's just... Right, that's that's right though. That's right yeah. though. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 really important to recognize. I mean, I I mean it when I say like we gotta we gotta exhale together on this shit because you know this is a very particular historical moment, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's why I think um th- those people that identify with some form of a liberation struggle tradition or, or even mm-hmm. or even or even it doesn't have to be a tradition it can be something completely new and invented now right mm-hmm. like if you're if you're identifying with some form of freedom seeking freedom loving self-determining community then you probably understand that that this this particular historical moment in which we're recording this conversation yes um, is, is relatively rare right mm-hmm. it's a relatively rare one where where profoundly radical revolutionary transformative abolitionist ideas analysis mobilizations right and, and forms of everyday world making practice are are open for consideration by a lot more people mm-hmm. right, than, than than they than they have been before right yes so yes. so part of, part of the job i think part of the obligation is to keep that window open as long as possible and the way to keep it open mm-hmm. is to is to do whatever you can militantly to mm-hmm. challenge and push back against the reformist absorption mm-hmm. of abolitionist, radical, revolutionary, and liberationist ideas, practices, and organizing, right? You have to challenge the. That's the main obstacle, right? The right wing assholes can challenge all that. What, what the right wing fuckers do is they actually reveal um, the bankruptcy of their own position, mm-hmm. right? Like welcome those confrontations, right? Because because they're because they're because they're for the most part they're assholes, right? Yeah. The well yeah. sometimes. Even the even the the well-meaning ones, if they're serious and they're actually not, you know talking to you in good faith, and I have friends who are like that, right? Who are kind of they've been raised conservative people, but if you actually have a like a real conversation with, they'll actually, despite them, even even despite their own ideological tendencies, right? They will actually swing over and concede a lot of your premises as an abolitionist, mm-hmm. right? Now they might not choose to be an abolitionist. I'm not saying that it's some kind of magic transformation, but like there's movement there where they're like, oh shit, I can actually see your position, right? The problem, so so that's that kind of confrontation is very different than the confrontation with with liberalism and reformism, right? Because because the assumption of the reformist position is that they have your best interests in mind, mm-hmm. right? So I say I say anytime that gesture is made, right? The job the job folks have is to say fuck off, right? You 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 know number one, how dare you assume that you know what my best interests are? Yes, right, yes. right, right, right. And number two. If you do know what my best interests are, then fuck you because then you're actually talking to me in bad faith, mm. right? And all the shit that you're telling me is actually in opposition. You, you're doing it knowing that mm-hmm. it's in opposition to my best interests, right? Because what reformism does, especially in regard to these forms of state violence, is it, is it introduces a calculus inevitably. It introduces a calculus that says two things. One is all of you targeted, oppressed people, right? You need to tolerate the intolerable while we work on things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what it says, right? Tolerate this violence until we figure that shit out, yeah. right? That's the first. The second thing it inevitably says is some of y'all just need to go ahead and die, right? There's a whole, there's a section of you 
that are targeted, for example, by anti-black policing, who probably deserve to be policed, right? That's the, that's the reformist calculus, right? It, it, it'll distinguish between who deserves to be policed, violated, and, 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 and uh, uh, negated, right? And who deserves some access um, to not being policed and negated, right? right? right. So, but that's, that's the reformist script, and, it, and it's, like, it's, it's hardwired, right? Yeah. Whereas, whereas we think about, we think about an abolitionist or liberationist or revolutionary script, it's, it's the opposite, right? To say like, no, we actually, we want liberation for people, including, including the criminal, including the sex worker, including, you know, the person who has acted out in violent ways. Like we actually want to figure out accountability, community and liberation together with folks like that, right? We want to know yeah. what accountability looks like, right? Yeah. Because the reason being that we are convinced that if we figure that out, right, if we work on that kind of radical abolitionist form of accountability, um, then number one, I think we can we can actually change the conditions through which uh, interpersonal violence, right, vi and I'm talking about sexual violence, domestic violence, you know, exploitative violence and whatnot, through through which we can actually get at the roots of that shit, right? Because because we live in a culture that reproduces all that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a neoliberal culture. It's a misogynist culture. I mean, it's all there. Right. So we need to get at the roots of that. I mean, the cultural roots just being one part of it. Right. So it's not just institutions and structures. It's 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 the cultural institutions, the cultural structures principally. Um, so I think it's, it's all the above. I think it's got to be all the above all at once. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a couple thoughts. Um, trying to see. I mean, and also just so much of it is just about colonialism, where before this country was invaded, it's it, like it's just it's also just this, yeah. Well, well, you look at this. I mean, you look at the, the, part of part of what. Aboriginal, indigenous, and native, you know, scholars, organizers, protectors, thinkers, you know, artists, spiritual leaders, and whatnot, community leaders, and whatnot, have have been saying for, you know, since 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 the invasion started. Yes, yes. Is is that is that the invasion never went away? Right, right. Like that 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 manifest destiny never went away, and you see yes. it happening um, all over this hemisphere right now. Um, most obviously, uh, in 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 the water protectors, you know, among yes. the water protectors, the, yeah. the, the the code access pipeline folks, right? That what you see happening there is, it's not just a confrontation between indigenous water protectors and their allies and the state, right, and corporations. Yeah. But you know, more recently, investigative investigative studies and journalism has come out that shows that you actually have a waging of paramilitary counterinsurgent warfare against the water protectors by mercenary by mercenary paramilitary firms right. who are infiltrating they're infiltrating the movement right and they're they're trying to figure out tactically and strategically how to destroy it right yeah. from without and from within so so it's counterinsurgency in the most um paradigmatic sense like if you if people go and they download that u.s army field manual on counterinsurgency you'll see that it's what it's what, what it was rewritten for was the ground war in in afghanistan and, mm. and iraq right that's what it was looking at it's like how how do you turn the native population in afghanistan and iraq against themselves and mm. in favor of, of our occupation right 
Mm. Um, and, and the derivatives come from come from frontier war, right? That's where that shit comes from. So it's it's counterinsurgency all the way around, and that's and that's what 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 I think we have to be aware of, right? Is that counterinsurgency comes from the conquest, like that's what the conquest inherently was from the start, right? It's it's saw, it saw indigenous ways of being in all of its different forms as a as as an insurgency against civilization with a capital C, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to which is to say genocide. Um, wanting to honor that and then also yeah. move along to the uh, next piece, which was um, just checking in to see how folks can get involved. Right with, on. Um, either through the UC system and or yeah. starting their own coalition where they're at. Right on. Um, well, first, I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out to all the organizations out there that I haven't named. I'll, I'll shoot you, Roman, I'll shoot you a bunch of links. Oh, great. Yeah. Just, you can just post it right next to the, the podcast so that people can mm -hmm. click on. But there's a bunch of easy ways to get affiliated. But but I'll, I'll give a special shout out um, to UCFTP, which is the Cops Off Campus Coalition. Mm -hmm. So it's so I'll just I'll say it another time. It's committed to getting rid of UC police by September 1, 2021. That's the campaign. Yeah. Right. We're we're gonna win, but we're also not afraid. We're not afraid if it doesn't happen September 1, then maybe it can happen September 2. Right. right? So we're not afraid. We're not afraid of that. We're just setting a deadline. You know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, scholars like to set deadlines for themselves, right? <laughs> we, but we, but 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 the whole point of setting the deadlines is it's, we we believe it is we fully believe it is an achievable goal, right? Like shit, let's do it by August first, twenty twenty one. Um, so 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 it's it's spurred by the group calls itself UCFTP. I love it because FTP mm -hmm. for me means it means fuck the police. Um, UCFTP for others means means feed the people. Means yeah. free the prisoners. It means a whole. So FTP means whatever you kind of want it to mean. Um, yeah. It's also a pretty cool way to find out what's going on. Um, if you're if you're in a University of California school or if you're you're in California in general, um, hooking up with UC FTP is a great way to get connected to other stuff. So you can find um, all the information on Facebook and Twitter at mm -hmm. UC FTP, right on Facebook and Twitter, and on Instagram at UC underscore FTP. Uh, and then you can also just use the hat. You can search the hashtag cops off campus and a bunch of stuff comes up. Um, there's also an email address mm -hmm. that you can, that, that, that folks that are uh, taking this in can, can uh, drop a note with and you can get connected to whatever's close to you. Um, and that email address is UC wide abolition. Okay. UC, UC wide abolition at gmail.com. Like we'll put it, we'll put it in, um, in the, uh, the set of links at the, uh, uh when you post, when you post the podcast. Um, Great. But I'll, but I'll say a quick word about what what UCFTP is involved with because um, yes. I want to I want to make sure people don't think it's just limited to the University of California. Mm -hmm. We just had a strategy meeting last Friday, actually. Um, I, we're what we're we're talking on on November 11th, on November 18th, right? So um, this is this is this is on November 13th. There was a, a kind of California statewide strategy meeting. We we were um, we were talking with a broad set of different folks representing different kinds of organizations, including organizations outside the UC system. Right from unions to the Cal States, um, I believe we might have even. I think we believe. I believe we even had uh, community college representation there. Um, we had staff, we had faculty, we had contingent faculty, we had undergrad students, we had grad students, so forth and so on. Right. So, so part of what UCFTP is committed to doing is, and I've been saying this throughout our conversation, is proliferating, right? Proliferating, proliferating this form of abolitionist struggle toward um, other organizations, other places. 
other campuses, right? If they're campuses, they're campuses, right? But also other organizations that are not necessarily campuses. Um, so, so what UCFTP is doing that I deeply respect and is part of the reason why I've, I've been working with it um, uh, intensively is that it is, it is unafraid um, and in fact, it is eager uh, to think robustly, to think experimentally, and to think in a sustained and accountable way alongside the work of, of other organizations and other places and other kinds of people, um, including people who might be more abolition friendly than they are mm -hmm. abolitionists, right? But, yes. but my, my, my point is that is that that's, that's part of the same kind of general political family tree, right? Is that being abolition friendly means you're probably there already, right? Mm -hmm. What you need to be is just in community with more abolitionist people. Yeah. So that you can feel more, you can feel like more comfortable embracing right. the analysis and embracing the practice. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it's it's anybody who is um, taking this in, you know, there's a 100% chance that you're within, you're within short driving distance at worst um, from some kind of coalition organization. Or in this day, in the age of pandemic, you are you are you know one one uh, Google Hangout meeting or whatever, you know. I'm trying to avoid popping Zoom up, right? One Skype meeting, yeah, you yeah. Skype, right? right. You're, you're one phone call, like you're that quickly connected to a group of people that is probably in your region, in your place, in your city, in your town, maybe even your neighborhood, that is um, thinking about doing this work or or, or is, has been doing this work. I'd say I'd say for sure mutual aid, right? Mm -hmm. There's mutual aid shit everywhere. Abolitionist mutual aid shit is everywhere. So like that's that's a good way to get started is to just find out what the local um, mutual aid organizations and networks are and connect to those. Great. And are there any events or um, action items that are like either coming up or folks that things that folks can do right now to help support Top Stuff Campus? Yeah. 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 I think I think um, if, if you go to the Facebook or the Twitter or the Instagram mm -hmm. um, pages, you will see a dynamic, constantly updated listing of events. Great. Um, so, so, you know, by the time I know the way podcasts are, right? So the, by the time somebody is listening to this or by yeah. the time somebody is taking this in, there's going to be a different set of events that come up. But there's, okay. you know, there, there, it, a, lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we're doing, though, is political education stuff. And that's posted mm -hmm. permanently. And so, um, so what we just started last Friday, actually, was the Abolitionist Open School, mm. right? So, um, yeah, about? yeah, my good friend and colleague, S.A. Smythe, um, and my other... My other good friend and colleague, uh, uh, Alejandro Villafondo, who, um, who's at CSU, Cal State University, LA, mm -hmm. um, SA is at UCLA. They, they um, are the two people I know best, but they uh, kind of co-organized a conversation around university police abolition. Um, it's kind of just an open political education kind of thing, and, and it's the I'm first thing. Oh, where did I, did I cut off? You cut off for a moment. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, where did I cut off? Um, you mentioned the folks' names. Uh, oh UCLA? yeah, yeah. So S.A. S.A. Smythe, my friend and colleague mm -hmm. at UCLA, and um, Alex uh, Alejandro Villapando at uh, Cal State L.A. Uh, they're the two folks I know best that co-organized the first abolition abolitionist open school, um, and that's that that they did that Friday, and it's posted now for posterity. Um, it'll be posted for posterity on the American Studies Association Freedom Courses site. So the intention of that is for folks to use it, right? Mm -hmm. Like like folks that that um, that want to, you know develop political education, develop dialogue, or even just kind of circulate it to people they're, they're doing the work with, um, mm -hmm. maybe, view, maybe view it together and then have a discussion. I mean, that's the purpose mm -hmm. of it. So like the abolitionist open school is, this, is gonna be, um, I think what we're pitching it right now is as a monthly, a monthly sequence of conversations between people. And the cool thing about it is that it's very intentionally 
not the same folks that you see on every fucking webinar, <laughs> right? So, so these are folks from different places who um, um, oftentimes are the kinds of organizers and activists who, who shun being on the webcast, shun being on the podcast, but are doing this work and have like a shitload of insight and analysis that they can share. So it's kind of pulling on those folks to share mm -hmm. um, and foregrounding their work. And so that's, I think, the beauty of that project. Um, so, so, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that that's available to folks too. So yeah, so it's an ongoing sequence and I think um, I'm loving it. I'm loving the fact that, I'm loving the fact that it's actually hard to answer your question because there's so much shit going on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, yeah. There's so many different ways, also, just for for folks to get involved too, which I try to remind myself and others as well right. that regardless of where you are, what you're capable of, um, who you know, who you, you know, it's there are so many different ways that folks can tap in and yeah, join up. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think I'll make sure that we populate your post with a bunch of links that anybody can click on. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, as we begin to, to round up the conversation, is there anything else you'd like to share or any other points you wanted to discuss? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important to, to think about this, this political identity question. Um, mm -hmm. as, as, as more people begin to get comfortable with engaging, engaging the historical and ongoing work of abolition, Mm -hmm. There's there's a simultaneous tendency um, toward the proverbial thirst trap <laughs> with some people who want who want to immediately identify themselves as abolitionists, uh -huh. whose 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 vision, whose agenda, whose politics, and whose practices might actually be counter abolitionist, mm -hmm. right? Who, who, who's 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 Kind of own history of work might actually be reformist mm. right? so it's it's a subtle and difficult thing to deal with but mm -hmm. it's something i feel obligated to raise here um and, and i don't mean this as my own version of trying to like police some mythical boundary between what it means to be an abolitionist and not an abolitionist right it's really i, I don't mean it that way i know some people can take it that way that's not really the, what i mean by this what i mean is um I'm pushing back against a certain kind of sloppiness, mm -hmm. right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm against political sloppiness at this moment, right? There's other times where I think it might actually be a little bit okay to be experimental, to be a little bit sloppy, and just like be, um, be very graceful, right? Mm -hmm. In kind of accommodating a certain kind of sloppiness. This is not one of those moments, I would, I would say, right? Um, and by sloppiness, what I really mean is people being unprincipled, mm. right? Because, because what I find is that the folks who are most um, engaged with this historical moment are the ones who are most careful, right? Who are most careful to say, you know what, this abolition thing is new to me. I'm not sure if I'm an abolitionist, but like, talk to me more about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I mean by the abolition friendly, abolition, um, you know, abolition affinity, like that kind of thing. And again, usually those people are just, they just need a community to be in. And then, oh, okay, shit, I've been an abolitionist all along, right? I'm talking about more of this kind of opportunism that comes up, especially, I think, among academics, right? Mm -hmm. I'll be really clear about it, especially among academics, where a certain kind of politics gets traction, right, um, which is for a long time been either dismissed or criminalized, and they fucking jump on board, right? And they say, I'm an abolitionist, I'm an abolitionist. Okay, well, 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 fuck or prove it, right? Like, I want to say prove it, right? Because 
because we, we got to scrutinize this because if we tolerate too much sloppiness, then what we're actually allowing for is for people who have a long track record of being anti-abolitionist, of actually being reformist, to claim to claim that political identity and then to popularize it because that's what they're invested in, right? Mm -hmm. They're invested in kind, in kind of circulating themselves as abolitionists. So I think we need to be in, in a consistent and principled way, but also in a deeply critical way, scrutinizing this, right? And I mean it for me too, y'all. Like, like I say it all the time to people, um, colleagues and friends of mine who are down with abolitionist parenting. I'm a fucking failed abolitionist parent. I'll tell you that right now, Roman. I got a 16-year-old and um, and a daughter who's about to be 13, right? So I, I'm I'm terrible. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a fucking carceral parent in most. I'm terrible, right? I'm failed and I'm still trying to figure that shit out. And I'm probably going to fail because they're about to be out of the house in a few years, right? So like so in other words, I'm not putting myself on some kind of pedestal as being abolitionist, you know, exhibit A. I'm not. I, I'm I'm just I aspire. I aspire. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm principled, right? I think I'm principled. And I think I can recognize when I um, am failing and and um, what my own vulnerabilities are, right? I'm concerned about people who are claiming abolitionist uh, affinity who actually might be, in their own opportunistic way, um, uh, uh, not very serious about it, mm -hmm. right? Not, not very collective and historically accountable to the kinds of risks, the kinds of beauty, the kinds of collective creativity, the kinds of um, collective genius that you must embrace, right? You are, you, you, it's like, it's, it's, it's mandatory. You must embrace all of that. If you're aligning yourself, if you're, if you're, if you're taking on abolition as part of your being, in, especially in this moment, right? Like that's it. There's, I think, I think there's, there's, there's too many people who are not interested in doing that. And we need to challenge that. And we just tell them, you know, you need to get on board with this, right? You need to be in community, you need to be embracing this. And you also need to correct your past bullshit, mm -hmm. right? Like disavow that bullshit, right? Like, I think, I think that's really important. It's like a demonstration too of humility, which I've said in other places, that is, a, that is central to every radical revolutionary liberationist tradition, right? Everyone that has, that has kind of, you know, effectively protected people and created community and, and like and like fought for self-determination liberation it's always been grounded in some sense of humility and people kind of saying yeah you know that position that i had in 2019 that was a fucked up position mm -hmm. right or that position i had in our last meeting with you all i just yeah. realized y'all you all were right that was a fucked up position like let me shift so uh, you know i've i've uh, and, and i'll put again i'll put myself in it because i'm not i don't want people out there thinking that i'm like on putting myself on some kind of pedestal like the last four or five months have been a radically disruptive intervention on my own ableism, right? Like I, I'm, I've, I've been privileged to be in contact with people who are down with abolitionist disability justice, mm -hmm. right? Um, who have, and, and especially my position as president of the American Studies Association, right? Who, who have challenged all the systemic ableism that I took as normal, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so that's what I'm talking about, right? It's like, yes. it's like, oh, fuck, I have to take a sense of humility here and like be, actually be guided and instructed by these abolitionists around me who have as their life work um, uh, 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 abolishing ableism, right? And actually, mm -hmm. and actually instantiating these creative forms of, 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 of centering disability, justice, and liberation mm -hmm. as part of what we do all the fucking time. Right. right. All the fucking time. that takes a deep sense of humility for somebody who is so completely ableist as I've been my entire life. Right. So I'm saying like that goes across the board for, for like cisgender men out there that are 
taking this in, right? Like it means challenging, challenging, you know, all the different forms of misogyny, of patriarchy, of sexism, etc. Right? For for all the heteronormative people, right? Or even homonormative people, it means challenging transphobia. Yeah. Right? All institutionalized, systemic, everyday, normalized forms of transphobia. It's all that. So that's humility, man. And like when you when you can when you can embrace humility in community with people, it's it's like a lot more productive, right? Then mm -hmm. it, that's the difference between humility and feeling humiliated. Like there's mm. there's a subtle difference, um, but I think it's an important in, in principle difference. So I think that's that's what I would want to leave people with um, in this conversation. Yeah, the the beautiful thought. I feel like we could also go on. There's like so much more to 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 talk about, and also. Perhaps we should just, uh, yeah, it's. We can do part two one day, Roman. I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for. This is fun. This is a your, blast. Yeah, for sharing your thoughts and your time. I really, it, like, it's the the time has flown by. It's been so engaging and enlightening. So I really appreciate you taking the time I, I, to speak. I, you know, I, I started with this. I'll end with it. I'll say that I appreciate the fucking invitation, right? I love being invited to shit. So thank you. Like, I I just appreciate that in a deep way. Thank you for inviting oh. me, Roman. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see here. All right. So big thank you to Dylan Rodriguez for this. <sighs> just, oh, so much. That conversation. Oh, there, there's so much there that I, I learned, and I'm so grateful for that. If you go to our webpage at weeklyrev.org, if you click on the November 20th, 2020 tab, we've got a lot of links there, including links to Dylan's books, the, can, the Cops Off Campus Coalition, different pages that they have where you can follow them, as well as several of the other organizations that were mentioned in the interview today. So please, again, go to weeklyrev.org. And the November 20th, 2020 